This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator when you've got Psychedelic Water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for Curvy Girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Size up, ladies. Pretty good stuff, I think. I've got a, I've got a sickness for the thickness, and I have to recommend Curvy Girl. All right. Also, Larry, fine, fine student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGTTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much, and back to the show. You're listening to KZOM, Olean Public Radio. And Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, your host for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Book Club. This month, or this chunk of the month at least, we are doing the terror by Arthur Mackin. Yes, we've done this in the past, but this is a better copy, and when a better copy shows up, hey, I'm going to put it on and take the other one off. So if you liked the old copy of The Terror, well, you should, you should download it. Go to pgttcm.com, and then that'll send you on another link. That'll send you on another link because it's such an old episode. I don't even know if it was the same podcast uh, provider that I was using when I started. Or, uh, anyway, yeah. Hit. So, Arthur Mackin. We know Arthur Mackin. We love Arthur Mackin. Uh, famous Welsh writer. Uh, wrote The White People, Great God Pan. Uh, we have episodes of people talking about Arthur Mackin, so go into the archive, dive around for that. I believe uh, probably Ken Hyde or Andrew Grace talking about Arthur Mackin in the past. And yeah, no, that's probably going to be somewhere around 2017, 2018, 2019. We have a lot of that kind of stuff. So check that out. And it may not say People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's it may say Black Clock Audio Tales. So, yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, this should be two chapters. 
a little intermission with some commercials to help pay the bills. But yeah, and it should be about seven episodes. So hopefully you're enjoying this if you're several episodes into this. And I hope you're having a good commute. I hope you're having fun folding laundry. I hope you're having fun watching your kid at the playground while you do whatever you do. I hope you're having a good flight and that uh, you make your connections safely. I hope that your workday is going well, or I hope that, uh, you know, you're just, your day off is going well too. And uh, yeah, everything's cool and chill. All right, well, here we go with some Terra from Arthur Mackin to mess up your tranquil lives. I haven't used that voice for a while. I hope I didn't blow anyone's ears out. Okay, here we go. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll send you down to Sathagwa. Go to the shop, check out our sponsors. Recording by Dan Grzynski. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter 5. The Incident of the Unknown Tree. Dr. Lewis, smiling indulgently and quite prepared for some monstrous piece of theorizing, led Remnant into the room that overlooked the terraced garden and the sea. The doctor's house, though it was only ten minutes' walk from the center of the town, seemed remote from all other habitations. The drive to it from the road came through a deep grove of trees and a dense shrubbery. Trees were about the house on either side, mingling with neighboring groves, and below the garden fell down, terrace by green terrace, to wild growth, a twisted path amongst red rocks, and at last to the yellow sand of a little cove. The room to which the doctor took Remnant looked over these terraces and across the water to the dim boundaries of the bay. It had French windows that were thrown wide open, and the two men sat in the soft light of the lamp. This was before the days of severe lighting regulations in the far west, and enjoyed the sweet odors and the sweet vision of the summer evening. Then Remnant began. I suppose, Lewis, you've heard these extraordinary stories of bees and dogs and things that have been going about lately. Certainly I've heard them. I was called in at Plas Newid and treated Thomas Trevor, who's only just out of danger, by the way. I certified for the poor child, Mary Trevor. She was dying when I got to the place. There was no doubt she was stung to death by bees, and I believe there were other very similar cases at Lantarnum and Morwen. None fatal, I think. What about them? Well, then there are the stories of good-tempered old sheepdogs turning wicked and savaging children. Quite so. I haven't seen any of these cases professionally, but I believe the stories are accurate enough. And the old woman assaulted by her own poultry? That's perfectly true. Her daughter put some stuff of their own concoction on her face and neck, and then she came to me. The wounds seemed going all right, so I told her to continue the treatment, whatever it might be. Very good, said Mr. Remnant. He spoke now, with an italic impressiveness. Don't you see the link between all this and the horrible things that have been happening about here for the last month? 
Lewis stared at Remnant in amazement. He lifted his red eyebrows and lowered them in a kind of scowl. His speech showed traces of his native accent. "'Great burning!' he exclaimed. "'What on earth are you getting at now? It is madness! Do you mean to tell me that you think there is some connection between a swarm or two of bees that have turned nasty, a cross dog, and a wicked old barn door cock, and these poor people that have been pitched over the cliffs and hammered to death on the road? There's no sense in it, you know. I am strongly inclined to believe that there is a great deal of sense in it, replied Remnant with extreme calmness. Look here, Lewis. I saw you grinning the other day at the club when I was telling the fellows that, in my opinion, all these outrages had been committed certainly by the Germans, but by some method of which we have no conception. But what I meant to say when I talked about inconceivables was just this, that the Williams and the rest of them have been killed in some way that's not in theory at all, not in our theory at all events, some way we've not contemplated, not thought of for an instant. Do you see my point? Well, in a sort of way, you mean there's an absolute originality in the method? I suppose that is so, but what next? Remnant seemed to hesitate, partly from a sense of the portentous nature of what he was about to say, partly from a sort of half-unwillingness to part with so profound a secret. Well, he said, you will allow that we have two sets of phenomena of a very extraordinary kind occurring at the same time. Don't you think that it's only reasonable to connect the two sets with one another? So the philosopher of Tenderden Steeple and the Goodwin Sands thought, certainly, said Lewis. But what is the connection? Those poor folks on the highway weren't stung by bees or worried by a dog. And horses don't throw people over cliffs or stifle them in marshes. No, I never meant to suggest anything so absurd. It is evident to me that in all these cases of animals turning suddenly savage, the cause has been terror, panic, fear. The horses that went charging into the camp were mad with fright, we know. And I say that in the other instances we have been discussing the cause was the same. The creatures were exposed to an infection of fear. And a frightened beast or bird or insect uses its weapons, whatever they may be. If, for example, there had been anybody with those horses when they took their panic, they would have lashed out at him with their heels. Yes, I dare say that that is so. Well... Well, my belief is that the Germans have made an extraordinary discovery. I've called it the Z-Ray. You know that the ether is merely an hypothesis. We have to suppose that it's there to account for the passage of the Marconi current from one place to another. Now suppose that there is a psychic ether as well as a material ether. Suppose that it is possible direct irresistible impulses across this medium. Suppose that these impulses are towards murder or suicide. 
Then I think you have an explanation of the terrible series of events that have been happening in Marion for the last few weeks. And it is quite clear to my mind that the horses and the other creatures have been exposed to this Z-ray and that it has produced on them the effect of terror with ferocity as the result of terror. Now what do you say to that? Telepathy, you know, is well established. So is hypnotic suggestion. You have only to look in the Encyclopedia Britannica to see that, and suggestion is so strong in some cases as to be an irresistible imperative. Now, don't you feel that putting telepathy and suggestion together, as it were, you have more than the elements of what I call the Z-ray? I feel myself that I have more to go on in making my hypotheses than the inventor of the steam engine had in making his hypotheses when he saw the lid of the kettle bobbing up and down. What do you say? Dr. Lewis made no answer. He was watching the growth of a new, unknown tree in his garden. The doctor made no answer to Remnant's question. For one thing, Remnant was profuse in his eloquence. He had been rigidly condensed in his history. And Lewis was tired of the sound of his voice. For another thing, he found the Z-ray theory almost too extravagant to be bearable, wild enough to tear patience to tatters. And then as the tedious argument continued, Lewis became conscious that there was something strange about the night. It was a dark summer night. The moon was old and faint, above the dragon's head across the bay, and the air was very still. It was so still that Lewis had noted that not a leaf stirred on the very tip of a high tree that stood out against the sky, and yet he knew that he was listening to some sound that he could not determine or define. It was not the wind in the leaves. It was not the gentle wash of the water of the sea against the rocks. That latter sound he could distinguish quite easily. But there was something else. It was scarcely a sound. It was as if the air itself trembled and fluttered, as the air trembles in a church when they open the great pedal pipes of the organ. The doctor listened intently. It was not an illusion. The sound was not in his own head, as he had suspected for a moment. But for the life of him, he could not make out whence it came or what it was. He gazed down into the night over the terraces of his garden, now sweet with the scent of the flowers of the night, tried to peer over the treetops across the sea toward the dragon's head. It struck him suddenly that this strange fluttering vibration of the air might be the noise of a distant aeroplane or airship. There was not the usual droning hum, but this sound might be caused by a new type of engine. A new type of engine? Possibly it was an enemy airship. Their range, it had been said, was getting longer. And Lewis was just going to call Remnant's attention to the sound, to its possible cause, and to the possible danger that might be hovering over them, when he saw something that caught his breath and his heart with wild amazement and a touch of terror. He had been staring upward into the sky and about to speak to Remnant. He had let his eyes drop for an instant. He looked down towards the trees in the garden and saw with utter astonishment 
that one had changed its shape in the few hours that had passed since the setting of the sun. There was a thick grove of ilexes bordering the lowest terrace, and above them rose one tall pine, spreading its head of sparse, dark branches, dark against the sky. As Lewis glanced down over the terraces, he saw that the tall pine tree was no longer there. In its place there rose above the ilexes what might have been a greater ilex. There was the blackness of a dense growth of foliage rising like a broad and far-spreading and rounded cloud over the lesser trees. Here, then, was a sight wholly incredible, impossible. It is doubtful whether the process of the human mind in such a case has ever been analyzed and registered. It is doubtful whether it ever can be registered. It is hardly fair to bring in the mathematician, since he deals with absolute truth, so far as mortality can conceive absolute truth. But how would a mathematician feel if he were suddenly confronted with a two-sided triangle? I suppose he would instantly become a raging madman, and Lewis, staring wide-eyed and wild-eyed, at a dark and spreading tree which his own experience informed him was not there, felt for an instant that shock which should affront us all when we first realized the intolerable antinomy of Achilles and the tortoise. Common sense tells us that Achilles will flash past the tortoise almost with the speed of the lightning. The inflexible truth of mathematics assures us that till the earth boils and the heavens cease to endure, the tortoise must still be in advance, and thereupon we should, in common decency, go mad. We do not go mad, because by special grace we are certified that, in the final court of appeal, all science is a lie, even the highest science of all. And so we simply grin at Achilles and the tortoise, as we grin at Darwin deride Huxley, and laugh at Herbert Spencer. Dr. Lewis did not grin. He glared into the dimness of the night at the great spreading tree that he knew could not be there, and as he gazed, he saw that what at first appeared the dense blackness of foliage was fretted and starred with wonderful appearances of lights and colors. Afterwards, he said to me, I remember thinking to myself, Look here, I am not delirious. My temperature is perfectly normal. I am not drunk. I only had a pint of graves with my dinner over three hours ago. I have not eaten any poisonous fungus. I have not taken anilonium lueni experimentally. So now then, what is happening? The night had gloomed over. Clouds obscured the faint moon and the misty stars. Lewis rose with some kind of warning and inhibiting gesture to Remnant, who, he was conscious, was gaping at him in astonishment. He walked to the open French window and took a pace forward onto the path outside and looked very intently at the dark shape of the tree. Down below the sloping garden, above the washing of the waves, he shaded the light of the lamp behind him by holding his hands on each side of his eyes. The mass of the tree, the tree that couldn't be there, stood out against the sky, 
but not so clearly now that the clouds had rolled up. Its edges, the limits of its leafage, were not so distinct. Lewis thought that he could detect some sort of quivering movement in it, though the air was at a dead calm. It was a night on which one might hold up a lighted match and watch it burn without any wavering or inclination of the flame. "'You know,' said Lewis, "'how a bit of burnt paper will sometimes hang over the coals before it goes up the chimney, "'and little worms of fire will shoot through it? "'It was like that. "'If you should be standing some distance away, "'just threads and hairs of yellow light I saw, "'and specks and sparks of fire, "'and then a twinkling of a ruby no bigger than a pinpoint, "'and a green wandering in the black, as if an emerald were crawling,' And then little veins of deep blue. Woe is me, I said to myself in Welsh. What is all this color and burning? And then at that very moment, there came a thundering rap at the door of the room inside. And there was my man telling me that I was wanted directly up at the garth, as old Mr. Trevor Williams had been taken very bad. I knew his heart was not worth much. So I had to go off directly and leave Remnant to make what he could of it all. End of chapter 5 Hey everyone. It's me, DB. Just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay, and the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. Uh, they've got some really good summer deals, and check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, they have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, 
submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Recording by Dan Gruzinski. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter 6. Mr. Remnant's Z-Ray. Dr. Lewis was kept some time at the Garth. It was past twelve when he got back to his house. He went quickly to the room that overlooked the garden and the sea and threw open the French window and peered into the darkness. There, dim indeed against the dim sky, but unmistakable, was the tall pine tree with its sparse branches high above the dense growth of the ilex trees. The strange boughs which had amazed him had vanished. There was no appearance now of colors or of fires. He drew his chair up to the open window and sat there gazing and wondering far into the night till brightness came upon the sea and sky, and the forms of the trees in the garden grew clear and evident. He went up to his bed at last filled with a great perplexity, still asking questions to which there was no answer. The doctor did not say anything about the strange tree to Remnant. When they next met, Lewis said that he had thought there was a man hiding amongst the bushes. This, in explanation of that warning gesture he had used, and of his going out into the garden and staring into the night. He concealed the truth, because he dreaded the remnant doctrine that would undoubtedly be produced. Indeed, he hoped that he had heard the last of the theory of the Z-Ray. But Remnant firmly reopened this subject. We were interrupted just as I was putting my case to you, he said. And to sum it all up, it amounts to this, that the Huns have made one of the great leaps of science. They are sending suggestions, which amount to irresistible commands, over here. And the persons affected are seized with suicidal or homicidal mania. The people who were killed by falling over the cliffs or into the quarry probably committed suicide. And so with the man and the boy who were found in the bog. As to the highway case, you remember that Thomas Evans said that he stopped and talked to Williams on the night of the murder. In my opinion, Evans was the murderer. He came under the influence of the ray, became a homicidal maniac in an instant, snatched Williams' spade from his hand, and killed him and the others. The bodies were found by me on the road. It is possible that the first impact of the ray produces violent nervous excitement, which would manifest itself externally. Williams might have called to his wife to come and see what was the matter with Evans. The children would naturally follow their mother. It seems to me simple. And as for the animals, the horses, dogs, and so forth, they, as I say, were no doubt panic-stricken by the ray, and hence driven to frenzy. Why should Evans have murdered Williams instead of Williams murdering Evans? Why should the impact of the ray affect one and not the other? Why does one man react violently to a certain drug while it makes no impression on another man? Why is A able to drink a bottle of whiskey and remain sober, while B is turned into something very like a lunatic after he has drunk three glasses? 
It is a question of idiosyncrasy, said the doctor. Is idiosyncrasy Greek for I don't know, asked Remnant. Not at all, said Lewis, smiling blandly. I mean that in some diatheses, whiskey, as you have mentioned whiskey, appears not to be pathogenic, or at all events not immediately pathogenic. In other cases, as you very justly observed, there seems to be a very marked cachexia associated with the exhibition of the spirit in question, even in comparatively small doses. Under this cloud of professional verbiage, Lewis escaped from the club and from Remnant. He did not want to hear any more about that dreadful ray, because he felt sure that the ray was all nonsense. But asking himself why he felt this certitude in the matter, he had to confess that he didn't know. An aeroplane, he reflected, was all nonsense before it was made. And he remembered talking in the early 90s to a friend of his about the newly discovered x-rays. The friend laughed incredulously, evidently didn't believe a word of it, till Lewis told him that there was an article on the subject in the current number of the Saturday Review, whereupon the unbeliever said, Oh, is that so? Oh, really? I see. And was converted on the x-ray faith on the spot. Lewis, remembering this talk, marveled at the strange processes of the human mind, its illogical and yet all-compelling ergos, and wondered whether he himself was only waiting for an article on the Z-Ray in the Saturday Review to become a devout believer in the doctrine of remnant. But he wondered with far more fervor as to the extraordinary thing he had seen in his own garden with his own eyes the tree that changed all its shape for an hour or two of the night, the growth of strange boughs, the apparition of secret fires among them, the sparkling of emerald and ruby lights. How could one fail to be afraid with great amazement at the thought of such a mystery? Dr. Lewis's thoughts were distracted from the incredible adventure of the tree by the visit of his sister and her husband, Mr. and Mrs. Merritt lived in a well-known manufacturing town of the Midlands, which was now, of course, a center of munition work. On the day of their arrival at Porth, Mrs. Merritt, who was tired after the long, hot journey, went to bed early, and Merritt and Lewis went into the room by the garden for their talk and tobacco. They spoke of the year that had passed since their last meeting, of the weary dragging of the war of friends that had perished in it, of the hopelessness of an early ending of all this misery. Lewis said nothing of the terror that was on the land. One does not greet a tired man who has come to a quiet, sunny place for relief from black smoke and work and worry with a tale of horror. Indeed, the doctor saw that his brother-in-law looked far from well, and he seemed jumpy, there was an occasional twitch of his mouth that Lewis did not like at all. Well, said the doctor, after an interval of silence and port wine, I am glad to see you here again. Porth always suits you. I don't think you're looking quite up to your usual form, but three weeks of Marian air will do wonders. Well, I hope it will, said the other. I'm not up to the mark. Things are not going well at Middlingham. "'Business is all right, isn't it?' 
Yes, business is all right, but there are other things that are all wrong. We are living under a reign of terror, it comes to that. What on earth do you mean? Well, I suppose I may tell you what I know. It's not much. I didn't dare write it. But do you know that at every one of the munition works in Middlingham, and all about it, there's a guard of soldiers with drawn bayonets and loaded rifles day and night? Men with bombs, too. And machine guns at the big factories. German spies? You don't want Lewis guns to fight spies with, nor bombs, nor a platoon of men. I woke up last night. It was the machine gun at Bennington's Army Motor Works, firing like fury, and then bang, bang, bang. That was the hand bombs. But what against? Nobody knows. Nobody knows what is happening, Merritt repeated, and he went on to describe the bewilderment and terror that hung like a cloud over the great industrial city in the Midlands. How the feeling of concealment, of some intolerable secret danger that must not be named, was worse of all. A young fellow I know, he said, was on short leave the other day from the front, and he spent it with his people at Belmont. That's about four miles out of Middlingham, you know. Thank God, he said to me, I'm going back tomorrow. It's no good saying that the wiper's salient is nice, because it isn't. But it's a damn sight better than this. At the front, you know what you're up against, anyhow. At Middlingham, everybody has the feeling that we're up against something awful, and we don't know what. It's that that makes people inclined to whisper. There's terror in the air. Merritt made a sort of picture of the great town cowering in its fear of an unknown danger. People are afraid to go out, out alone at nights in the outskirts. They make up parties at the stations to go home together if it's anything like dark, or if there are any lonely bits on their way. But why? I don't understand. What are they afraid of? Well, I told you about my being awakened up the other night with the machine guns at the motor works rattling away and the bombs exploding and making the most terrible noise. That sort of thing alarms one, you know. It's only natural. Indeed, it must be very terrifying. You mean, then, there is a general nervousness about, a vague sort of apprehension that makes people inclined to herd together? There's that, and there's more. People have gone out that have never come back. There were a couple of men in the train to home arguing about the quickest way to get to North End, a sort of outlying part of home where they both lived. They argued all the way out of Midlingham, one saying that the high road was the quickest, though it was the longest way. It's the quickest going because it's the cleanest going, he said. And the other chap fancied a shortcut across the fields by the canal. It's half the distance, he kept on. Yes, if you don't lose your way, said the other. Well, it appears they put an even half crown on it, and each was to try his own way when they got out of the train. It was arranged that they were to meet at the wagon in North End. I shall be at the wagon first, said the man, who believed in the shortcut. And with that, he climbed over the stile and made off across the fields. It wasn't late enough to be really dark, 
and a lot of them thought he might win the stakes. But he never turned up at the wagon, or anywhere else for the matter of that. What happened to him? He was found lying on his back in the middle of a field, some way from the path. He was dead. The doctors said he'd been suffocated. Nobody knows how. Then there have been other cases. We whisper about them at Midlingham, but we're afraid to speak out. Lewis was ruminating all this profoundly. Terror in Marion and terror far away in the heart of England. But at Midlingham, so far as he could gather from these stories of soldiers on guard, of crackling machine guns, it was a case of an organized attack on the munitioning of the army. He felt that he did not know enough to warrant his deciding that the terror of Marion and of Stratfordshire were one. Then Merritt began again. There's a queer story going about, when the door is shut, the curtains drawn, that is, as to a place right out in the country over the other side of Midlingham, on the opposite side to Dunwich. They've built one of the new factories out there, a great red brick town of sheds, they tell me it is, with a tremendous chimney. It's not been finished more than a month or six weeks. They plumped it down right in the middle of the fields by the line, and they're building huts for the workers as fast as they can, but up to the present, the men are billeted all about up and down the line. About 200 yards from this place, there's an old footpath leading from the station and the main road up to the small hamlet on the hillside. Part of the way this path goes by a pretty large wood, most of it thick undergrowth. I should think there must be 20 acres of wood, more or less. As it happens, I used this path once long ago, and I can tell you it's a black place of nights. A man had to go this way one night. He got along all right till he came to the wood, and then he said his heart dropped out of his body. It was awful to hear the noises in that wood. Thousands of men were in it, he swears that. It was full of rustling and pattering of feet, trying to go dainty, and the crack of dead boughs lying on the ground as someone trod on them, and swishing of the grass, and some sort of chattering speech going on that sounded, so he said, as if the dead sat in their bones and talked. He ran for his life anyhow across the fields, over hedges, through brooks. He must have run by his tail ten miles out of his way before he got home to his wife, and beat at the door and broke in and bolted it behind him. There is something rather alarming about any wood at night, said Dr. Lewis. Merritt shrugged his shoulders. People say that the Germans have landed, and that they are hiding in underground places all over the country. End of chapter 6